most of us might scratch our heads or play a computer game for a few minutes while we decide when our company, big or small, should enter that new emerging market in India and China. It's a good idea to reflect for a little before taking such a momentous business decision. But you don't have to think for too long. The pathways are becoming well-trodden, and studying the so-called emerging markets is now something of a science. There are a few well-known do's and don'ts for the hard-headed businessman or woman. Gerard Tellis is the Neely Chair of American Enterprise and Director of the Centre for Global Innovation at the Marshall School of Business, USC. What we found is closeness helps, but it's not closeness geographic as closeness culturally uh, and uh, closeness in economics factors. So, for example, the US uh, uh, is uh, nearly as far geographically from Singapore and India. However, uh, in economic distance, it's much closer to Singapore because Singapore has adopted the U.S. model and has translated very much to a U.S. system, well, as India is very far from a U.S. model. So it's the economic distance and the cultural distance uh, which, may, which is a factor, not the geographic distance. Gerard Tellis says it is that cultural distance and economic distance from the emerging market you're entering that has a huge impact on your success in that market. Cultural distance is a very important factor because uh, companies have been rushing to enter India and China and one of the things they might overlook is uh, they are coming from completely different cultures. And what we find is the greater the culture uh, between the host and the home country, uh, the bigger the pitfall and the more likely uh, a company is going to make mistakes. Gerard Tellis says time of entry also determines success. The later you enter, the lower your chances of success. If you enter early, uh, you are able to shape consumer preferences as well as tie up distributors, as well as um, uh, get, uh, get ahead of competitors. And for all of these reasons, you might do well. On the other hand, if you come in late, you can learn from the mistakes made from the early entrance, as well as learn from the success, as well as use new technology. So there are factors which might favor early entry and there are factors which might favor late entry. And so what, how entry affects success is an empirical issue which we looked into. And also, if you enter later, you've got more competitors, I suppose. Yes, and as you enter later uh, over time, uh, competition also increases. Especially the competition increases because of the deregulation. Over time in India and China, both countries have been deregulating and the number of local as well as multinational corporations have increased and therefore competition has gotten stiffer. And as the markets in the new emerging economies open up, Gerard says success is not necessarily guaranteed. You have to make the right decision at the right time. Here are his tips for success. We look at success as what we call a dependent variable, and there are a bunch of uh, independent variables, uh, time itself, the regulatory environment, the mode of entry, whether controlled or not, uh, the cultural distance, the economic distance. These are all independent variables. And in order to control for them simultaneously to see which one is more important, we run what we call a regression model, regressing uh, success on all of these factors simultaneously. 
then the question I have to ask you next is, what are those five secrets of success if you as a company want to enter an emerging market in China or India? Well, uh, the biggest uh, factor we found is uh, control. Uh, the more you control your own organization, the more you rely on your secret formula of success and your parent organization's culture and experience, the better you do. So uh, the question is, why wouldn't firms do that? And the reason is that when they tried to enter India and China, in the early years, both India and China had a lot of regulations, and therefore they restricted the mode of entry, and they required that you enter through an alliance or a joint alliance or a franchise. And so companies lost uh, control. And what we found is the more control you have, the better your success. If you're still not sure about that emerging market in India or China, it might be a good idea to knock on the door and find out what the locals say. They're closer to the markets themselves and have not only studied them, they also feel the emotion of them. Rama Bichapurka is a leading market strategy consultant and author of We're Like That Only, Understanding the Logic of Consumer India. It is, I think, uh, completely chaotic, and I think it's uh, it's a country of one billion individualists and lots and lots of communities and lots and lots of chaos, and uh, we're the world's largest democracy, and democracy, as you know, is a mixed blessing. Everyone has an opinion in addition to a vote. Um, so I guess the, uh, the thought is that uh, Consumer India does things the way it's supposed to do things, um, because uh, uh, it has its own particular logic that may seem illogical to the others. Rama Bichapurka believes it's the diversity of the Indian market that sets it apart from others. I did make the point that there are lots of Indias, and uh, the India that is the agricultural India, the farmer, uh, he doesn't really care what happens in America because uh, his life is really dependent on the rain gods. But on the other hand, if you look at the whole IT sector and all these kids who work in IT, I mean, when the Nasdaq sneezes, they actually catch a cold out here. A lot of people celebrate the fact that as more women go out to work, households will change. But I think the way uh, women are in India, uh, outside the house, you know, all, all Oriental cultures and more so India, we have a great tolerance for ambiguity. So we have this and that. So outside the house, you, I am Rama Bijapurkar, the management consultant who's talking at the judge business school. And the minute I step in through the front door, I will tuck my sari around my waist, uh, this, this bit of it, and uh, just go back to being Aparna's mother and having to make the chapatis, which is positively labor when I make it for my child, but to make the chapatis is negative labor when I have to make it for my mother-in-law. She believes the sheer force of consumerism in India, with its own homegrown and distinct values, will help to reshape and redefine the values of global MNC, or multinational corporations, in the future. That change, Rama believes, will be for the good. There is an opportunity in India to actually, uh, with India, to create a different kind of consumer society. Uh, it doesn't have to be hyper-consumerism. It doesn't have to be keep consuming more than you actually need. Um, for example, a lot of people ask me, when will India be ready to be green? And the point is that we actually do have a disposable culture. We recycle everything. We reuse everything. As I jokingly say, the last thing we voluntarily made the effort to throw out was the British, after which we actually uh, will recycle and reuse 
use everything. I mean, if you look at the banana leaves we eat out of, if you look at what happens uh, in a lot of uh, even smaller urban households. So to actually drive this entire culture down the route of plastic and cardboard and hyperconsumption so that you can then bring it back to green seems like a bit of an irony to me. So I think it is an opportunity to, uh, by just being who it is, I think companies will adapt because there are only two human motives, greed and fear. So companies will adapt to this particular type of consumer demand in India? Yes, they will, because I think we have seen a lot of multinationals who came there, hung in there, uh, you know, uh, wrote off their equity and net worth two and three times, and then eventually now when cola companies are selling water as compared to cola, I think you know that somewhere it's true. But Rama warns the playback times will need long lead-ins. I think it will feed into, I'm not saying this is going to happen instantly, but I think even now we can see over the last 15 years, I think when people first came into the Indian market, the multinationals, they would say, we've seen it in Mexico, we've seen it in Brazil, we've seen it everywhere else. And, you know, I used to work in a consulting firm with a partner who said to me, he was a Dutch Brit, and he used to say, why do you think you're different? Do you wear your noses on your ears and does water flow uphill in India? But I don't think he would ever ask that question today because today I think, uh, even as you saw in today's presentations, uh, India, that India is a difficult country, that you have to bend to India rather than uh, sort of pressure the market into submission is uh, fairly, I think, well established. So from there, I think companies will start uh, changing um, the challenge. And I think if they change over certainly a couple of generations of management, I think there will be the understanding that the center of gravity of global is shifting and is shifting towards India and China. So I think, uh, yes, the minute they accept that there is a new center of gravity of global, uh, which is India and China, then I think you will find companies will change. So it's inevitable. And you talked in historical times about the cell phone changing India in much the same way as the automobile did America. Why do you think that? The um, entire society, for example, in, in, in America, the entire society was constructed around the fact that uh, the car companies had the automobiles, and so they, for you had takeaways and you had drive-throughs. The entire retail environment was uh, you drive far away and then you get factory outlets and so on. Whereas here, the point with the cell phone is that every vegetable vendor has one, right? Today, we don't have to step out. Uh, you just call and he will bring it home. Um, it's changing gender equations. I mean, you know, earlier, if the phone was in the living room um, and uh, you were in an orthodox family and your husband was overseas, uh, if he called, your mother-in-law and your father-in-law would all be monitoring your conversation. Whereas now we find, especially in the rural areas, uh, there is a chap with a cell phone who actually is a mobile uh, booth for you. And so you'll find this young bride can go far away, hide under the tree, and lots of movies actually are made around this, and tell her uh, husband that, you know, they actually ill-treated me. She can tell her parents that. And it just makes everybody uh, sort of pay a little more attention. And I think that the, uh, the amount of productivity of the small Indian entrepreneur is really because the cell phone empowers you. Well, there are two stories you told. One is of the missed call. Let's deal with that one first. Okay. Um, Most telecom companies actually make their money by looking at how much money people actually spend making calls. Uh, But in India, even uh, the people who do have cell phones and can't afford to make the calls, if they had to call someone who was better off than they were, they would say, Madam, I will give you a missed call. And give you a missed call means that they will call you. You see their number. They will disconnect. 
disconnect and then you call them back. And so if you travel to a different city and you have a roaming cell phone, the driver who's supposed to pick you up in the car will give you a missed call and he doesn't have to pay roaming. And so now the missed call is actually a product that was invented by the customer that the mobile company has no choice uh, but to actually have. And I think it's, it's, it's completely uh, creative. It's, it's, it's a stroke of genius the way they can actually do that. Emerging markets in India and China may well have been the title of the Centre for India and Global Business, Judge Business School Conference, but the differences between the two countries are as great as the similarities. Rama calls them Asia's non-identical twins. I think the uh, tip for the business is uh, the, the, the two. One is that uh, uh, everybody... All, uh, India doesn't want to grow up and become like America. It cannot grow up and become like something you've actually seen somewhere. So understand that we have a hydra-headed monster that will grow up to become its own kind of grown-up hydra-headed monster. It won't become like someplace else. I think that's really uh, the, first, the, the, the first message. And I think uh, the second message is really to say that can you bring order into this entire chaos and build scale but not build it for what you already know, but build it for what they're already doing in this market and, you know, co-create with the market. I think that's, that's really what we're saying. Build for India, make for India. In these emerging markets, the ability to get your brand recognised will be key. Why do consumers change their preferences? Why are they loyal to some brands and not others? And how important are friends, family and word of mouth in influencing the choices that consumers make? Kunal Sinha is executive director at Ogilvy and Meta Greater China. People in China are always interested in new ideas. They're looking at new offerings for companies, whether it's retail formats, whether it's uh, new technologies. Uh, they're, they're sort of willing to embrace change as they have in the last 25 years. So it would be a good idea to get in early rather than late. But on the other hand, uh, you, you want to make sure that you do the right thing when you go in and, and building a brand through celebrity isn't always the way. Um, how do you go about it? Well, uh, the, the thing is that you learn from the mistakes that others have made uh, very, very simply. So you don't have to make those mistakes again. In the emerging markets in China, Kanal Sinha says there's so much diversity, ingenuity and creativity that China cannot be viewed as a homogeneous whole. Each market is different. The usual perception that people have of China from outside is that it's one homogeneous uh, Mandarin-speaking world, but that isn't the case. And it's only in the differences that the diversity and the creativity can, can emerge. Because if, if the, the whole thing of looking at a monolithic China is about imposing a set of uh, restrictions on creativity, but when you look within, that restriction doesn't exist because people want to express their identities, whether it's their cultural identity, whether it's a expressing their identity through, through a very, very diverse cuisine that they have uh, or uh, in term, the, the diversity between what happens in the big city or the small towns. So that immense diversity between the generations, between the regions is something that makes it such fertile ground for creativity and indeed for brands to occupy that space. Indeed, we saw a slide that said crocodile on the menu. Uh, you talked about the food diversity and the ingenuity in catering for all tastes as well. Tell us that story. 
Well, um, the, the, the pictures that I showed were very, very atypical of Chinese cuisine because that is uh, the case. Chinese cuisine isn't about noodles and dumplings. There is so much. Uh, there are so many different things about the kind of spices that are used, the formats in which foods uh, are served and indeed prepared. Uh, it's it's more about the freshness of the ingredients. It's about taking into account what's available locally. It's about taking into account the heatiness and coolness. Uh, cool of, of, the, of the foods and what functions they serve for the body. And um, while the local brands know that and the local restaurant chains understand that, it's, it's really interesting that KFC, which is uh, a company that we've been working for for almost the last decade, considers themselves as a Chinese company. And the locals do not even think uh, that they are an American, Kentucky-based uh, company. And that's because what they have done is they've taken into account the variations in the cuisine, the unique things that are going to drive people into the customer, uh, into uh, customers into the restaurant and experience everything from rice congee to uh, uh, to uh, dumplings uh, to chicken that is prepared in the local style. While the obesity rate for the little empress in China goes up, boot camps are established to help those overindulged children lose weight. Now that's what you call marketing. Kunal again. In spite of the what what everyone looks at as the one-child policy, the, the the reality is that there are already 312 million kids under the age of 15 in China. So that's, that generation is going to grow up. And, but because uh, the reality is that only 20% of uh, the kids of families in China have only one child, uh, between 60 to 70% actually have two children, this will continue to be the force uh, that will drive consumer markets because they are the people who are interested in new ideas. They are the ones who, are, uh, uh, who need to be taken into account when you're designing products. So the problem is that when you start thinking of just the one child, you think of a lot of pressure being put on them. And that pressure is something that needs to be released. Everything doesn't have to be about achieving. Uh, things have to be about letting those kids have fun. The senior citizens of China are important consumers too. They don't sit around, but take daily exercise and are now known as the rejuvenated generation. That's an emerging market within China, says Kunal. On the opposite end of the spectrum are the senior citizens. Uh, there are 143 million people who are above 60. These are people who've consistently saved up. They've seen how China has changed and what uh, stake in the prosperity as consumers. Very few companies are actually taken into, uh, taking into account the unique needs that senior citizens have. And that is something that we're advocating needs to change. You need to 58 million uh, people do some sort of physical exercise uh, 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 in China, um, the people above the age of 60. Why aren't athletic companies gearing up for that market? They're not currently. They're sort of too focused on the youth market. The tales of creativity within this huge, diverse and sprawling marketplace called China are many, but the future for many will now be online. Unlike India, China is connected up and the bloggers are having a field day, despite firewalls and the like. Some advertisers have taken advantage of this and launched their advertisements through miniscule budgets online. Kunal again. A lot of the expressiveness actually happens on the internet. China already has the world's largest uh, uh, population, which is on the internet, about 285 million. And that is really where people are very, very expressive. 
there's a huge number of bloggers, but because people want to get under the radar, sometimes they write more than one blog, so that if one gets, gets shut down, they can continue to express themselves on, on another. People are referring to each other. They want their friends to read their blogs, and, and uh, that's how trends get spread. That's, that's something that's incredibly important to understand. And again, for brands, we realize that engaging consumers on the internet is going to be very, very uh, a key uh, to marketing success. Indeed, you, you talked of one case study where they didn't have enough budget, but they did have enough creativity to produce a fabulously funny ad, at least I look good, even if I can't play the sport. And they did that just through the internet. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, uh, Samir, which is a local youth fashion brand, uh, didn't have deep pockets and were competing against international heavyweights. And, uh, and these ideas really came to us from uh, from the consumers themselves who were saying, you know, what are these big brands or what are these, you know, why does it always have to be achieve, uh, about achievement? Why can't we just have fun and, you know, the way that we address doesn't have to be always about achievement. But because this was a local company that didn't have deep pockets, they decided to do their uh, campaign on the web. So so they ran their uh, their films uh, on uh, the the web channels such as Yuku, and incredibly popular because just just by doing that kind of activity, which was linked to their website, they generated a huge amount of customer interest. And not just customer interest, they generated a lot of franchising interest. And as a result of its uh, Samir, it's the second largest uh, uh, youth sportswear brand in China today. As a successful businessman, photographer and author who's written a book called How Creativity is Transforming Society and Business in China, Kunal likes looking into the crystal ball on China's future. Needless to say, he thinks the emerging markets are there for the taking. I've been in China for three and a half years. I'm only beginning to scratch the surface. And I think uh, I mean, the thing, uh, I mean, we're always looking at it in terms of how can companies gain competitive advantage of, uh, uh, of the trends, of the creativity that, that exists. Now, uh, and, and which is why we're, we're always saying that, you know, you need to break uh, a market or a culture uh, that you're studying down into handleable segments so and 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 then determine what are the possible opportunities within those and just doing that sometimes requires creativity now that's storytelling but the center for india and global business at judge business school in cambridge had a few more stories to tell at its innovation in india and china conference 